Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today, from Pretoria, South Africa, is Dr. Madhuri Apani, who is an ophthalmologist in private practice and also used to work as head of the ophthalmology department at One Military Hospital. Welcome to the show, Dr. Apani. Thank you for having me. Dr. Apani, One of the things which I found very interesting in your career is that you used to work as the head of a department at the ophthalmology department at One Military Hospital, which is one of the hospitals servicing the National Defence Force. Can you please tell us about some of the work that you did there and the responsibilities that that came with holding that position? Well, an ophthalmologist's um, work basically is to make sure that people retain their sight until they die. So everything that we did was around that. And it being a military hospital, we only catered for the military and their dependents. What I mean by... um making sure that people see is uh do screening to rule out certain things that are certain eye diseases that can blind or even patients coming in to say i'm struggling with this and that as as far as my vision is concerned and examine find what the cause is and then try and treat it the aim actually is just to try and prevent blindness that is preventable. You know, there's blindness that you cannot do anything about. And there's blindness that if we catch whatever early, whatever the the problem is early, we can do something about it and then prevent the patient from becoming blind. That was my responsibility. And that meant would treat medically, give medication, or at times would have to go and do surgery to try and help the patient see. And because the military is traditionally male-dominated, did you ever have uh, situations where you felt that being a woman was an issue in terms of treating male patients? Male patients, not necessarily. Not necessarily. The military just has hierarchy. It's like the general is more senior to you when you are of a lower rank and that was, uh, I mean, lady generals as well would have to be treated accordingly. But I don't think I had any experience where it was like that I'm being treated the way I'm treated because I'm a woman. I've never had that. That's really good to hear. And it mm-hmm. just speaks about the, you know, the professionalism in, in your career and also mm-hmm. of the work that you do. Uh, Mm -hmm. Turning into private practice, what would you say is is one of the most rewarding aspects of your your work? Well, (laughs) I I want to, I believe um, we can lose many things, but when once you lose your sight, life becomes a bit of a limitation. 
you know, you need help to do even the basics of things. The most rewarding is they bring an elderly lady being walked into your consultation rooms, not able to see you with, say, with a cataract. You take the patient to theater, remove the cataract, and the following day when you remove the, the dressing, there's, oh, you're wearing a brown dress today. Oh, oh you know, <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's, that is very, very rewarding. Cataract management is one of the most basic things of ophthalmology. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, the most rewarding because it doesn't take long. It's usually a fairly successful op. And if thing, if you don't get complications, like just the following day when you remove the dressing, they see the difference and they grateful. You know, they'll come and say, thank you very much. And want to give you a chocolate and others and others. And I say, no, no, no. I'm already being paid for doing what I've done. There's no need for you to give me those things. But removing, bringing sight to somebody who, for instance, had a cataract just the following day is very rewarding. I can only imagine it really is literally being able to to see again. Thinking about conditions like cataracts, uh, it's an aging condition. What should people be doing to monitor themselves, to, to check? Because, you know, sometimes I feel that people tend to live with things or they, they'll just say, oh, you know, it's a consequence of getting older. And they don't realize that, some aspects are treatable and you can get back to your normal way of being. Yeah, unfortunately, the tendency amongst, I'm African, I'm Debele. The tendency amongst the African is they usually say it will get better. When you say, but why have you been bearing this kind of thing for such a long time? They say, no, we thought it would get better. But Basically, cataracts don't lie to you. You don't have to be told by someone else. The, the, the thing that needs to happen is when you see that you're struggling with the things that you were able to do when you were younger, then it, you should go and seek help. The problem is in the rural areas, there isn't, I mean, eye care centers are not are not, I would say, not evenly distributed throughout the country. There are certain areas where there are very few, and there are certain public places in those rural areas where you'd find that they don't even offer IK. So unfortunately for those, they will they will live with whatever until, you know, cataracts basically can be reversed. But there can be complications as a result of those cataracts that make it difficult for this patient to see again. And that is one of the challenges of rural versus urban. One, you're mm-hmm. talking about the fact that we just do not have enough facilities. But I'd also imagine mm-hmm. that information as well as limited access to treatment are, are also challenges. Yes, I have rural relatives, relatives in the rural areas. And I've noticed that almost every house has a television set. 
maybe what needs to happen is the television must be, we mustn't only have eye care drives during those uh, celebrated or I don't know what was the right word to use, but on those, this like say this is glaucoma week and then we have a, uh, some somebody going on television to say this is what happens and, 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 and. Like we, well, like we uh, advertising toothpaste, there should be, the government should sponsor those kind of things on TV to say, be careful. When you're not able to do what you used to be able to do with your eyes, it is time for you to go and see uh, an eye doctor. And I'm, in my, my people, African, not only this, I, maybe I should say the majority of people think optometry and ophthalmology is the same thing. So most of them, when they don't, when they're not able to see, they go and see an optometrist. And maybe what needs to happen is there must be a, a good working relationship between the optometrist and the ophthalmologist. The optometrist must know that if they're not able to get the patient's vision to as near as as near to six six as possible, then it means they must refer to an ophthalmologist just so that they can see if there isn't anything that can be reversed to make the patient get uh, as near to normal vision as possible. That's a really important point that you raised, distinguishing between optometrist versus ophthalmologist, because you're you're right. Uh, The terms sound very similar for people who are not in the know, and we do need greater collaboration between those disciplines to to help the, the public. And as you said, greater public awareness about health and putting those messages through in public broadcasting platforms is is essential, mm-hmm. not just for rural people, but but urban too. Yeah. Well, the the advantage of the urban is they can go to the public places. They they normally get into one taxi to do it. And if there's a problem with the urban, whatever, the ophthalmologist in private, if the patient has medical aid or if the patient can. But in the rural area, most people, most specialists will not go to rural areas. If they go there, it will be going there once every month. And some of these things cannot wait for once every month visits. So, yes, more the rural area needs to be the other yes the rural areas need to be covered the 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 urban areas um i want to believe there the urban areas the thing that is prohibiting them from seeing is availability of funds not everybody is on medical aid and you find that the public hospital i worked at a public hospital which is not military as well at some stage the waiting lists there can be very 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 long and then a patient comes with a pe- with a problem, uh, which you know, even if it is just itchy eyes for you, it's urgent. Then you come, we look at you, and you say, "No, no, no, this is not urgent. Give an appointment, the next available appointment." And you find that the next available appointment is three, four months later. Three, four months later, you come, we see you, we say you've got a attract the waiting list is so many patients and wait for us we will we will call you when it is your turn you know (laughs) 
and some of the time the turn takes forever. If it is an elderly patient, some of them, by the time it's their turn, they've already demised. That is uh, tragic. I mean, you've, you've spoken for me about the disparity in rural versus urban, but also in terms of our effectively two-tier system in South Africa of private health versus public health and uh, extensive waiting periods in the public health sector, which really compromise uh, patients' uh, health. I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you, women are different to men. Are there any conditions that women uh, are perhaps more predisposed to from uh, an eye um, eye health point of view? Mm, there are certain conditions that are commoner in women, but they're not specific for women. The only thing that I can say is... Um, can happen specifically in women is a pregnancy related detachment. You know, when they have a, um, what do you call it? Preeclampsia or eclampsia. That's condition where they're pregnant, blood pressure is very high and, uh, and all the other things that they look for, they're losing protein and et cetera. Those patients can get what we call an exudative retinal detachment because of that high blood pressure. But uh, other than that pregnancy-related, I mean, men don't fall pregnant, the other things anybody can get, men and women can get. So what are some of the more common conditions that that people should effectively um, be on the lookout for and be be aware of. So let, let's take that that public health message um, more seriously in in our show. Okay, we have a pandemic of obesity. Obesity goes with diabetes. Diabetes has eye consequences as well. And as ophthalmologists, we are privileging that we can look into the body. We can peep through the eye and see what the state of the blood vessels of the retina are. And usually what happens there, the eye is happening generally in the rest of the body. If diabetes is managed well and diabetics know that they have to be seen on a regular basis at least once a year by an ophthalmologist, then like all things, if you catch any a, a diabetic problem early, you'll be able to do something about it early and that way the patient will not necessarily go blind. Diabetes is one. So diabetes causes preventable uh, blindness. If we catch it early, we will be able to uh, collaboration between the physician and the ophthalmologist will make the patient uh, retain their vision for as long as possible. The other thing that is also unfortunately um, silent. You can have it and not know it. It's called glaucoma. Glaucoma is when the pressure in the eye is high and prolonged high pressures over time damage the nerve. And when the nerve is damaged, you're not able to see it. And unfortunately, once the nerve is damaged, we cannot do anything about it. 
nerve damage is irreversible. That's what we believe in with this present knowledge of medical science. So the trick with type with glaucoma is catch them early and treat. When you catch them, whatever vision they have lost, you don't regain. You just prevent further uh, further uh, deterioration in vision. And we're going towards uh, March. I can't remember the days exactly. But there is glaucoma awareness week sometime in March. Maybe what you need to do is just to Google which days it is. They told me, but I've forgotten. But but the week for that week, what should happen or what is expected to happen? The only thing is COVID uh, changed a lot of things. During the glaucoma week, anybody could walk into any uh, eye care center, especially the public ones, just for screening. You know, at times when you come to say a Pretoria hospital and, and from you, you're from Limpopo, would say, no, 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 you don't belong here. Go to the, the, the hospital that services your area. But during glaucoma a week, the screening, anyone could walk anyway. And the good thing about those kind of, uh, that, or that kind of screening is we will, you come, you get screened for glaucoma, but if they find that you've got other things, then it's not like they're just going to say glaucoma. No, you don't have go. They'll say glaucoma, but you diabetic as well. We're seeing this, this, or you've got a cataract as well. We're seeing this and that and that. So the, 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 the thing that needs to happen is those weeks and Days that are dedicated to those um, particular diseases. If we can just go back there and do what we used to do, I'm not saying we will, we will. I'm not saying we will be able to eradicate, but we will be able to put a dent in preventable blindness as a result of glaucoma. Cataracts. The good thing is, even if you come when you're already just seeing light. Dr. Abani, are those screenings free? No, screening is free. In the public sector, it's free. It's supposed to be. Supposed to be free. That's a fantastic initiative. And I, I like what you're saying, that it's not checking where you are residing, that during those periods of uh, those awareness weeks, that it doesn't matter where you are, you can go into a facility, have those screenings, you've got uh, preventable options, you've got a barrage of, of tests that are run to to check if you have any conditions and then to to seek further further treatment. So um, great initiative. So you've spoken about diabetes and obesity and the consequences that those could happen on the effects of the eye. You also spoke about glaucoma and uh, the the high blood pressure element and um, well, high pressure in the eye element and the damage, irreversible damage to to nerves, to the optical nerve. And um, you mentioned uh, Cataracts. So thanks for giving us that that round robin view. And I, I do hope that these awareness weeks, now that COVID is effectively over, will continue. I wanted to ask you, going back in time, what made you decide to specialize in ophthalmology? 
It was a very tough decision. I I was a GP and um you know when you're a GP the back doesn't stop with you. You see and then you have to refer up when you're not able to manage. And there was this sense in me that the back needs to stop with me somewhere. But I was not sure which way it was. And to be honest with you, ophthalmology was not one of them. I I went to medical school via a BSc degree. So I thought maybe I'd end up in a lab with pathology, chemical pathology or microbiology. But it was, um, I have a sister who's an optometrist. And then in that struggle, he said, but why don't you consider ophthalmology? And then it was like, okay, fine, maybe. I'd seen ophthalmologists and I was not intrigued by what they were doing. But I think that maybe I should say this. I want to believe that I was led by God there. Mm. It is ophthalmology now that I was, I'm in it for a woman, very woman friendly. Eyes don't kill, eyes go blind. At night, when there's a step chest or problems with a delivery and there's an eye that needs to be sutured, the eye will not be given priority. So um, maybe it's it's a negative way of looking at things, but positive in that you do very little night work. You, you're not expected to be driving up and down at night and exposing yourself to the things of the night. So it was, uh, I found myself there, let me put it that way. When I was at medical school, I definitely was never never going to be an ophthalmologist, but I ended up there. And I think it was a good choice for a woman. I just want to go back to something you said a few moments ago, which is this idea that it's not just about the profession you do, but for a woman, it is about the safety of your environment of um, is something going to happen to me on on the road? Is something going to happen to me when I'm actually in the hospital trying to do my job and uh, someone attacks me or, or there's some adverse component that women seem to have to be subconsciously thinking about all the time? Mm. Yes. It, not that it doesn't happen to men, but women are, you know, they're not as strong as men, and I think women are an easier target. Fortunately, I haven't experienced any of that. But I do think that, especially when they say there's a this at night, I always want to negotiate. Can we do it in the morning? Is it not possible for us to come? I'll come early in the morning to do. Simply because getting out of the house, driving alone, there are certain spots in town where you have to be super careful. Why, 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 why must I subject myself to those? Absolutely. I mean, um, that's that's the issue. It's it's all of these these risk factors that we have to have to contend with. 
in thinking about your your qualifications and obviously there's a whole load of of specialization of when you study in in medicine and then specialize in stream uh, broad terms how would you say that attaining your academic qualifications has has impacted on your life and and the part of the reason that i ask this is that for many women they maybe finishing school they may be at a, a point in their lives where they're thinking should i really go into further study or should i just get a job and and get on with life um from your point of view for people who are maybe at that uncertainty what would you say uh, in in terms of the choice of going through for further studies to really have an impact on their future but when you say fair studies are you saying from metric onwards from metric onwards yes i you know when i my parents went to school up till they called it jc to standard i don't know what it is now grade 12 11 grade 10 up till grade 10 and it was enough and then my mom went nursing uh and then there was a stage when metric became if you have metric it was like you were you you were, you had an edge on those that just had jc then we've progressed from metric now junior degree probably in my time everybody has a junior degree now so in i think when you when you if you allow yourself to study further if you given the opportunity to study further use it because it gives you a unfortunately life is about competition it gives you a competitive edge number one number two what i normally say to the younger people even the boys that i have to talk to i think we are reaching a stage where um expecting to be employed is not a given so if you have the capability and 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 the truth of the matter is i'm not talking academics only if say i choose to be a, an electrician take being an electrician to the highest level you don't necessarily need to be employed by anybody yes maybe for the experience you can be employed by whatever once you have the experience and they say sorry we are retrenching you're able to go solo so uh it being taking studies further academically or vocationally arms you for life and make sure that yes you may not be rich but you'll be able to live you will not go to bed hungry your kids will not go back to hungry hungry you will have a roof over your head doesn't have to be a mansion and life goes on so young people must be encouraged not to say metric is the end of met if metric is the end of school they must be having a plan they must be having a plan of what is it that they are going to do and how do they think with whatever they've gathered up until a metric that they are going to do that is going to make the next best people go to them instead of somebody else but i encourage young people boys and girls or ladies and gentlemen to further their studies if they can 
and choose choose those areas in life where you know you'll be able to stand on your own to the company say sorry we are we are retrenching the company's not doing well it, it doesn't become the end of life for you what you're saying is so critically important and i think that we need to change the way that the education system is educating young people about opportunities optometric that it's get your certificate and then you're going to have a job because the reality is we have such high unemployment rates in south africa mm-hmm. that you're not just going to find a job and i really mm-hmm. like what you're saying about creating your own space making yourself employable being independent and not dependent on any organization mm-hmm. What is scary, maybe, maybe I don't know whether this is the right space to say this. You heard recently, doctors were on strike because they're not, they, they were, they qualified, but even the hospitals that qualified them cannot employ them, number one. But we also say that doctor to patient ratio in South Africa is not that great, but still we are not able to employ them. So the thing the things the privileges that our parents and maybe we had are not guaranteed for our children. It's a very sad state of affairs and honestly something that I personally can't comprehend that we have a need we have uh, produced the talent but we can't place them. It honestly mm. doesn't doesn't compute with me but um that that's not something i i feel i can solve my my small my two cents impression is maybe i don't know if that is doable but maybe the 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 private sector should absorb them the I private sector should absorb them but the thing is how are they going to get paid but all this that these people need is experience and once they have experience they can go and fly out maybe maybe you should maybe your organization should think of ways of making the private sector absorb post community service doctors just so that they can maybe they shadow somebody else the only unfortunate thing about them is they're going to be what is it if they're shadowing an ophthalmologist then that is all they'll be exposed to the the only other time would have been internship and the two years of community service but that is better than having them stay at home absolutely and not put all those hard earned skills which are so needed by society to to use so i hope um i hope the people here and and take heed of of what you're saying as as a valid suggestion Dr. Pani, we're coming towards the the end part of the show and in this section I often ask my guests to reflect on uh, some aspects of of their own lives so thinking about uh, potentially their their recipe to to success some people have spoken about hard work uh, certain people in their lives of faith can you give us a view of some of the the components that you feel have contributed to your success 
Yo, I, I think for any, even yourself, to succeed, you must be supported. Uh, maybe your parents encouraged you to do, follow what you, what your heart takes you to. Number one. Number two, you know, there are times when we just get high, not tired, scared. Scared that no, no, this field, uh, nobody can tread to it, in it. It's only a special whoever that the truth of the matter is if you take away fear, you'll be able to go where you feel your heart is taking you to. And yes, going to where your heart takes you to also requires people mentoring you. When you arrive there, you must, it mustn't be that nobody wants. I mean, nobody was born knowing anything. We've learned from our seniors. We pass knowledge. So if it is your turn to pass the knowledge to the next generation or to somebody else, do it. You know, <laughs> I always say when I was in academia, I said, the problem with this life that we're living is when you're a registrar and you're thinking, I take it as a, you're my student. I show you uh, whatever you need to be shown. When you qualify, the dynamics change. Now you become my competition. And then because your competition, there's that element of, he mustn't know this. She mustn't know this. That should not be the attitude. The attitude, how we should look at things is, as far as I'm concerned, is mentor that person such that the day I am old and I need a contract operation, I am comfortable to go to him. When I'm old and my heart is doing nonsense, I'm able to go to the cardiologist because I taught him or her well. Forget up. Yes, forget money makes the world go round, I suppose. In private practice, there's competition for, for that. But the truth of it is, in all, if, as far as I'm concerned, your goodness or your excelling has absolutely nothing to do with my success. You can excel in your corner and I will excel in my in my corner. And even if I don't excel, there will be an area in my life where those that have the kind of knowledge I have will be able to live. And if it, whatever is, I, I, I decided last year, by the way, I'm, I'm a pensioner now. Okay. I decided there's something that I want to do in eyes. I ran away a bit from it when I was younger. I did, and then there was a break, and then I like lost confidence. And the person that I wanted to go and learn from was, uh, he actually came to me when he wanted to do ophthalmology. See, how do I go about this? He now does excellent work. He was not taught by me, but he's, he does very good work. 
I said to him one time, uh, you know, I, I think growing old has made me realize that life has problems, but each problem has a solution. And if you set your mind on wanting to get the solution, you will get it. So the thing that we need to do is you who know, be willing to mentor and mentor the person like you're mentoring your child and mentor the person like you're mentoring your future health caregiver in your old age. I think those are wonderfully wise words. And one of the takeaways that I have is that there is enough space for all of us um, mm. and to be able to to freely give, to, to give that knowledge, to build up one another so that we contribute effectively to benefit everybody, not just enrich the self. Mm. Uh, Dr. Pani, we are running out of time. So as we close today's conversation, please share a, a few words of inspiration you'd like to pass on to girls and women who are listening to us. Well, if you're given an opportunity, use it. That's all I can say. It's not everybody that has the opportunity. If you are given the opportunity, use it. And once you have climbed that ladder, make sure that you take someone else's hand and go up. Let the person go up so that that person can also go down and go take someone else's hand. And that way, information or skills will, will make sure that we, we never lose any skills. Pass it on to the next. You are where you are because somebody sacrificed and taught you. Do the same to the ones that are junior to you as well. What a great message. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure hearing about the discipline, hearing about the work that you do, and uh, looking forward to, to the future of being able to grow people uh, across the board. Hey, thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity, and we have been talking to Dr. Madhuwe Apani, who is an ophthalmologist in private practice.